Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. To the Prime Minister's credit, on the weekend, he said that this is, the world has changed. He's recognised that. And I think that's the language that we need to start communicating as the body politic, that this is inevitable now. It's going to happen. And if we sit on our hands and sit on our feet, our economy is going to be smashed. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And in the pod cave in Canberra with me this week is uh, one of my favourite people on the planet and a fellow veteran of what what would we call it, Erwin? Uh, the climate war torture or something. Exactly, I don't know. the climate war <laughs> torture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That we are, yes, a fellow veteran of climate war torture. Yeah. Erwin has kicked around climate change policy for... 30 years? Yeah, must be. Yeah. yeah. Scary for both of us, really. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> that means that that puts a date on how long I've kicked around. So anyway, <laughs> That's right. Anyhow, anyway, Erwin uh, is, is, is very much an expert in this subject and has played a number of roles behind the scenes as Australia has struggled to, well, let's not even go there. Currently, he is with the Investor Group on Climate Change and he is the policy director there. Just before we get into the substance of the conversation, mm. you might tell the listeners, Erwin, what is the Investor Group on Climate Change? What is that? Well, it's an industry association and we represent about $2 trillion of assets under management, which is largely super funds, big fund managers. I mean, to give that a bit of context, like the super industry in Australia is about $2.8 trillion. We have about $2 trillion of that, both retail funds, industry funds. And it was really set up 16 years ago because that's when investors really started to think about what climate change meant for their investment portfolios. And since then, it's evolved incredibly rapidly. And our role is really to translate what the investment community is seeing to government, translate what government wants to see back to the investment community, but also to work with investors about how we actually grapple with this really challenging problem. Like Mm -hmm. it's, you know, how do we get to net zero emissions? How do we increase ambition to 2030? Um, So we work a lot with our investors about how they can actually play a positive role in that transition. Yeah, and we'll get back to that. But first of all, I want to set the scene because a lot of listeners will know that this is a very big week in climate Mm. change globally. Mm. Just for clarity, we're recording on Wednesday. So Mm. we're recording ahead of the summit, which is being organised, a virtual summit by the American president, still newish American president, Mm. Joe Biden, late this week, uh, where the Americans will be unveiling a target and and so will others, or or targets and commitments. Mm. Australia has signalled that we will promote, I guess, uh, new spending on hydrogen hubs Mm. and and various other things, but we don't anticipate Australia will have some massive... Mm. 
Les Dames was there. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's hope that events prove us wrong. Anyway, enough from me, more from Erwin. It's a big week, as we've hmm. said. Just sort of give us the give us the the, the call of the board, right? Where, where are we at this hmm. week in in global climate change? Do you think? Um, climate well, action, I should say. Yeah. Well, I think this is the real. What well, the period we're in now is really the first real test of the Paris Agreement, because in Paris, countries agreed that that they at this time they would update their 2030 targets and revise their 2030 targets, and come forward with long-term plans to reduce emissions. Now we're in the process of seeing how that happens in practice, and. The summit this week is really the sort of the first corner of what we're going to see in the lead up to Glasgow, where the US actively engage back in the conversation as they were in the lead up to Paris, bringing together leaders to really put pressure on all countries to step together, to come together to actually step up ambition. And as I said, this is just the first corner. We're going to see more of these events over the year, the G7, G20s, UN summit in September. So this, this is going to be relentless and all year, all countries, um, particularly Australia, are going to be under a lot of pressure to show their credentials and increase their ambition. And we'll get to our government and where Australia's at in a tick. But in the lead up to the summit, we saw a joint statement by mm. John Kerry, who is Biden's climate envoy and, and the Chinese government mm. uh, just sort of pledging broad ranging cooperation, yeah. which I think foreign policy analysts think is a sign perhaps of a slight thaw mm. in a very complex yeah. diplomatic relationship. I'm asking this because, as you said, America is now re-engaged in the debate yep. after the Trump period where Trump actively removed America from mm. leadership on climate change. Yeah. But the two principal actors in the world are mm. America and China in yeah. terms of whether or not we solve this problem or not. Mm. Their relationship is complex, as I yeah. said, because of the trade war and other mm. things that have erupted. So what do you reckon about the prospect for America and China to reach some sort of a, well, not a rapprochement, that's stupid, but yeah. some sort of... What's the word? Cooperation's too yeah. strong a word, but but some detente, some yeah. sort of detente on climate. What do you reckon? Well, I think it's really inevitable because I think you know climate change is an area where where there is a common interest with with China and the US. If you think about it strategically, like it is a threat to international security, it's a threat to the global financial system, and it's a threat to economies and people all over the world. And you know that's that's as big a threat as in China is it anywhere else? You know yeah. the Himalaya glaciers are melting where they get most of their water. They're not stupid. They know this is a real issue. And now the question is what they will do in advance of Glasgow. And I think what we're seeing from the US side and from the statement the other day is that they're going to work together to cooperate to ensure that, from the US side anyway, that China increases its ambition more, but also to do that in a respectful way. Because a lot of the time there's a lot of China bashing goes around on this yes. issue, which is not necessarily particularly useful given out of all countries in the world, they've probably done the most to reduce emissions. And you, by coal bashing, you mean people say, oh, China's talking the talk on climate change, but it's building 11 yeah. billion coal-fired power plants, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's come home hmm. and look at our own government hmm. and where our own government is situated hmm. with the sort of enlivening of the global climate action hmm. dynamic. Yeah. So. What's your analysis or assessment of where Australia sits right at the moment? Well, it's, well, in terms of where we sit in terms of our emissions targets, um, they're relatively weak. I don't think, but despite what the government says, that any internal, external analysis that's independent would assess anything else. You know, with the US moving on a stronger target, with Canada moving on a stronger target, with Japan moving on a stronger target, with South Korea moving on a stronger target, the EU upping theirs, the UK upping theirs, we're basically going to 
be, I suspect, by the end of the year, if we don't move, the only advanced developed country within the G20 that hasn't increased its 2030 target. Yeah, well, I was going to say, let's clarify what target we're talking about, because Mm. there's a lot of talk in Australia, because the Prime Minister is signalling, obviously, Mm. that... Look, if if you're reading the tea leaves, you Mm. would think that the Prime Minister is trying to set up a proposition where Australia adopts a net zero target by Glasgow at the end Mm. of the year. And anyway, we can get into that too. But right now, what you're talking about is the medium term emissions reduction targets. And we've we've seen no signal as yet Mm. from the Australian government that we're going to up our level of ambition. And look, for for people who are listening who are Mm. not as obsessed with this debate as you and I are, what's the importance of the medium term target? Why does that matter? Well, it really matters from, like, if I'll just give you an example from an investor's point of view, because the long-term target matters because it sends a long-term signal. Investors are managing long-term assets for 40 to 50 years, so that signal is really important. But from the economy's point of view, the other thing that's really important is the pathway or the trajectory mm. that you get to that target. So the last thing the economy needs is for us to toddle along as if the world hasn't changed mm. and then try in 2040 to meet net zero emissions. Um, That would be economically disruptive and it would have a massive impact on those communities that are dependent on those exports and those fuels like coal. And if you just to give an example of the central banks of the world, you know, our RBA, the Bank of England um, and others have calculated that if we go down that path, the economic cost of achieving our target will double. Mm. And that's the kind of situation we need to avoid. We need to get on a smooth trajectory to net zero. We can't get on a, a bumpy, disruptive one because that's going to just damage our economy, damage communities and damage our standing in the world. What about, because uh, there's, there's another way we can come at this, and this is on what the climate science tells us mm. needs to happen, right? Mm. We've sort of, in Australia, we've wasted a decade, mm. essentially. The climate science is pretty clear about what needs to happen over the next decade, right, yeah. in order to avoid some of the to the mm. runaway climate change. So there's that as well. I mean, you're you're looking at it through an investor lens, and mm. and increasingly in Australia, we're, we're having this debate through an economic lens, which yeah. is a relief to me and I know to you, but the science tells us we have to move too, right? Because I'm only labouring this point because Mm. you will meet people, let's call them technology enthusiasts, who talk about the hockey stick curve. And Mm. what I mean by that is that we can just go along flatline and then all of a sudden Elon Musk invents a giant vacuum cleaner that takes carbon out of the sky in 2048 and it's Bob's your uncle, right? But the science doesn't it and I'm deferring to your wisdom, mm. the, the science presents a more complex picture than that though, right? Oh, absolutely, because climate change is what's called a stock problem. It's a problem where the more gases you put into the atmosphere, it builds up as a stock, and that's what drives the climate change. It's not the emissions in any particular year. It's the accumulation of emissions in the atmosphere over time. Yes. And that's what drives the temperature change. That's what drives the climate change. So if you're going to limit temperatures which is what the Australian government and all other governments have agreed to, you've got to limit the total amount of emissions that you put into the atmosphere. Um, And that means we have to start reducing emissions pretty much immediately from now, getting towards net zero globally by 2050, um, if we're going to have any chance of of limiting warming to levels that have been agreed in the Paris Mm. Agreement. I I think it was important. We might have been labouring that slightly too much, Mm. but I just think that's important because I'm not sure that everybody understands that, that that we can't literally sit around, that the science tells us that we can't sit around. Mm. So, okay, so I've sketched out Australia all 
telegraph some spending yeah. uh, at this Biden summit on current indications. Mm. Where do you see Australia going? Because uh, there are there are other milestones which we've sort of flagged, but we mm. haven't delved into this year, yeah. where Australia has some opportunities. Well, there's going to be a number of international summits, like the next one after the, the Biden summit or the leader summit, as it's been called, is the G7, hosted by the UK. Their top priority, foreign policy priority, is addressing climate change. So that's going to be very high on the agenda. Um, the all- pretty, we should just pause there. Hmm. Like that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like seriously, that that the UK has articulated climate change as its top foreign policy priority. When we look at a dangerous, hmm. complex world, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it's not just the UK. The US is signalling exactly. the same thing. It's just a recognition that governments and policymakers are starting to clock on to what's actually what yeah. people have been saying for 30 years. Yeah, yes. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I just, we just wanted to share that optimism with you. Yeah. Anyway, I, I disrupted your flow. We're talking about the Australian government in the mm. next six months. So Yeah, so the G7 will be the next big opportunity. And then we'll obviously have, um, that's in, in June, um, the UK are hosting, as I said. that's in the UK, yeah. Yeah. Then we will have a number of events around September. And I think that in, in practice is the real deadline for countries to come forward, because this this meeting in Glasgow is very different to any COP that we've had before. Mm-hmm. Why Be- is it different? Because in the past, we've been negotiating agreements. Like the Paris rule book has pretty much been done. There are a few technical issues that need to be sorted out and some key negotiating points that need to be sorted out. But there's very few. We basically have the agreement. We've got the rule book. So governments aren't turning up to negotiate something new. Mm. What they're turning up to do is show that they're serious about achieving the objectives of the Paris Agreement. And this is how the Paris Agreement was always designed to work. You come forward every five years and say to the international community, this is the effort I'm making. The international community says, uh, not good enough, Mm. um, and pressure is built. And this is what we're seeing over this year. The other thing to bring really important point, which is also lost in Australian politics at times, is this process is going to start in about three years' time again. Mm. So it's no, this whoever is in government in three years, it's going to be faced with exactly the same problem. I mean, we've seen overnight the, the UK, for example, announcing a 78% reduction by 2035. <laughs> and that's the next step that's going to happen again. We're going to have to come back in three or four years' time and say to the international community what we're going to do in 2035 and how we're going to demonstrate that we're going to get to net zero emissions. Mm. And September, because the COP isn't until November, that's for right. people who don't understand how international climate yep. negotiations work, what's the why is September the focus? Well, I think my expectation is that the US government will host another summit mm-hmm. around that time. Because I think the the US know that because of what happened under the Trump administration, they've got to give some countries some slack because they themselves have a credibility problem. So they need to build up their own credibility that they're serious about their action, they're doing things domestically to show to the international community that they are actually walking the walk. So I expect by September is really where the real deadline that the US have in mind, and that won't be just for Australia, that will be That's for China everyone. and India yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, at that time, we've also got the UN General Assembly, mm-hmm. and we've also got a traditional what's called New York Climate Week, where yes. you get non-state actors from all over the world descending on New York to talk about the actions that the rest of the real world is doing. It's pretty amazing in that, that week in New York. Yeah, yes. That is a pretty amazing time. Anyway, okay. So pressure being brought to Australia, right? Mm. We can see that and we can see that the, the Prime Minister at Glacial Pace is starting to is starting to move. Mm. But uh, I guess the question I have is all of the all of the actions speak to an Australian government that is facing external pressure from mm. some of our key allies in order to not be idiots on climate yeah. change, right? But obviously foreign policy relationships are complex. Mm. They're multidimensional. I guess a question I've had in the back of my mind mm. really since the election of, 
of President Biden has been how much the Americans will push us when when push comes to shove, right? Mm. Obviously, like there there is a the election of Biden is a boon for climate action. Yeah. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Mm. But Australia and America's relationship is is deep, mm. is complicated. Mm. You know, the Americans I suspect will rely on Australian insights to help them manage their relationship with China. Hmm. You know, we're eyes in the region for America, right, Hmm. without overstating our status. Hmm. So what, as a person who's watched this for 30 years, Hmm. do we we think the Americans are really going to turn the screws on Australia? I think they will, and I think the, the British will and the EU will. We're already seeing it with the trade negotiations with the EU. They're pulling that lever. You know, we're going to. This is not going to go away. We're seeing in Japan they're currently investigating whether to put a, a, a tariff on the border for imports yes. of highly intensive products. Like this issue is not going away, and I think at the end of the day, it's really a question for the government because my expectation is probably by the end of the year we will have seen most, um, if not all, other advanced economies like Australia coming forward and strengthening their 2030 target. Does Australia really want to be the only country not doing that? That's, mm. a real, that's the real question for yes. the government. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Let's track to the investment community, hmm. which is now where you're situated, where yep. your efforts are situated. Hmm. Give listeners a sort of broad sense of where the investment community domestically is at in their Mm. heads about climate change, where it sits on their hierarchy of priorities, Mm. how it influences decisions. Mm. Uh, And obviously investors work in a, well, in a global context, particularly your folks, but also in a domestic context. So Mm. uh, policy informs decision-making. So let's let's just wander happily around the investment community and share a few observations about where they're at? Well, I think the, the first thing I would say is that um, climate change is now a central consideration for many mainstream, or if not all mainstream, large investment decisions. And that's really evolved from a few things. One is that when Paris was signed, it set a huge market signal. It was the first comprehensive global agreement that committed to achieve net zero emissions. Mm. And that's a huge market signal, which then investors, because they're long-term, they've got to think about 2050, think, what does that mean for our portfolio? So they started to run the numbers as investments investors do. And they sort of realised that, ah, actually, we've got a whole bunch of stocks in fossil fuel companies, or we've got a whole bunch of assets in fossil fuels, which don't look very good in the long term. Mm. Um, the other thing that's also happened is that the financial regulators globally have become much more active because they recognise that climate change is not only a risk to individual investments, it's, an, it's an, a risk to the global economy. Mm. And again, the central banks projected just last year that, you know, and they said this is probably an underestimate, that climate change could knock 25% off GDP. Mm. And that is a huge economic shift. So if you think of COVID, it was six. <laughs> yes, I, don't, I just sort of, my blood just slightly ran cold there. For a moment. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and that's sort of that then, because now the, now the financial regulators, because their, their mandate is to maintain financial stability, improve the economy, they're working now with the investment community to actually make sure that investors are adequately putting those risks into their balance sheets. And there's also sort of been activity at the shareholder level too, hasn't there? It's sort of mm. like all of these things seem to be happening simultaneously. It's sort of like businesses switched on. Yeah. Regulators are becoming more vocal, even, you know, in some instances, like directly contradicting 
elected governments in yep. the sense of what the urgency of the task. Yep. But also we've seen across the board in a lot of companies, big mm. companies, shareholders getting active, yep. bringing up resolutions to executives saying, hey, guys, yeah, what, yeah. Uh, how sustainable is this whole you know, thing? Is this a house of cards? Like, mm. How important is that sort of activity? Well, I think it's actually probably been the biggest development in climate policy globally in the last few years, to be honest. And I'll just give you one example. So Climate Action 100, which we work with, is a collaboration of investors globally. And just I'll put some eye-watering numbers out there. So it, it captures about $70 trillion of assets under management, which is over half of global assets under management. To put that in context, the Australian economy is only $1.2 trillion. Mm. This is a lot of money. Yeah, And what those investors are doing is actively engaging with companies because they, they want those companies to succeed. And the only way those companies can, can succeed is if they transition to net zero emissions. So we've seen investors become much more active in engaging with boards, shareholder resolutions, all the tools that they have to influence the companies that they ultimately own. Mm. Because at the end of the day, an investor has to, it's a legal obligation to deliver a long-term return to if you're superannuation, yes, they you, they want that to be you. They want you that you have to make sure you retire with dignity, with all their power. Yes, and the only their biggest lever in some respects is the ownership of BHP Rio Tinto, yes. and that's why that ultimately that's been the driver of why all of these companies have have committed to net zero emissions. Yeah, because it's, like let's unpack that a bit hmm. again, because this is a this will be like Mars for some people in yeah. terms of the how this all fits together. But but the story you're telling is hmm. that big pension funds, big Big super funds, hmm. because they, in effect, they have major stakes in in big corporations. Yeah. They are driving behaviour in fossil fuel companies like BHP. Hmm. They are, in essence, saying to BHP, um, "Guys, yeah. where are we going to be in fifty years?" Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so that that's a whole dynamic that's been playing out, and we've seen that in the fossil fuel industry in Australia in terms mm. of the diversification that's starting to happen and exactly. all of that sort of stuff, right? Mm. So all of these things kind of fit together. Mm. What about – so obviously the investor community in Australia mm. has been, like you and I, tied mm. to the climate business yeah. for 20 years without really clear policy signals, mm. without – well, you know, with with rules of the road that appear and then disappear, yeah. with a hyper-partisan political debate that, you know, yeah. sort of makes sort of, you know, CEOs grab the smelling salts and hide under their tables, right? Because yeah. the Australian business community doesn't like being involved in fisticuffs in the public domain, right? Mm. But how is that... Some of them anyway. Well, so, well that's, that's true. Until, <laughs> until they do, in which case they're, they're loud and never present. Yes. Anyway, uh, but setting that to one side, right? So... How is the the cluster cast impacting investment behaviour in Australia? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Because as you say, you know, long-term investors need stability, need to, to be able to actually show that they can get good returns for their um, superannuation members. And what we're seeing basically is global capital is, because this is all global, you know, our investors in Australia would love to invest in Australia, but at the end of the day, if they get a better deal in another country, it's their obligation to go and take that deal. Yes. So that's essentially what we're seeing, mm. where because of the, the policy settings, like some of our biggest funds have no renewable assets in Australia, but they've got a lot in Europe and they've got a lot in North America. The ones that do have assets in Australia or investing in renewables in Australia in their projects might have one for every $1 they invest here, they'll invest $3 overseas. Mm. And that's simply because, you know, they're competing internationally to get access to get into these projects because the investment community globally sees this as a good deal. 
Mm. Now, this is all about money. It's a great deal. The future is renewables. That's where we're going to make our money. And there's competition to get into those projects. So, and Australia's investors are competing in that global environment. The other interesting thing that's emerging is because of the reputation that we built up over the last three mm. decades internationally mm. as a not a particularly um, stable stable or um, constructive player yeah. internationally, you know, it's damaging our reputation. Well, that's the thing. It's sort of like when we say this, it can sound it can sound a bit hyperbolic, right? Mm. But the sort of money you're dealing with, your mm. people are dealing with mm. large, untethered money mm. that can go all around the planet yeah. uh, into whatever seems suitable or mm. whatever seems a good bet. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like surely like the level of investment risk in Australia would be very high because the last 15 years has been a succession of policy changes. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're not, um, with all due respect to Venezuela or, you know, mm. obviously we're not that. Yeah. But still, uh, there must be a high degree of uncertainty, which then, you know, sort of makes the opportunity cost of all of this really stark, right? So, yeah. like, what's required to turn that around? I suspect the answer is obvious, but, like, is the answer obvious? Well, we basically, the first thing we need to do is start catching up with the rest of the world. And because, and that that means our emissions targets in the short term. The other thing we do need is, like, it's we've we said it for so many times, I feel bad about saying it. We need some bipartisanship, mm. but you need stability in policy. You mm. need predictability in policy. Um, and we have none of that at the moment because of the, the, the torturous climate wars we've had. Mm. That said, we are actually seeing it at a, at a state level. Some good policies emerge, which are exciting investors, like the New South Wales Energy mm. Plan, for example, yeah. is because it's got it's got clarity on the direction, it's got clarity on the investment needs, it's got clarity on the objectives. Investors are prepared to look at it and think about how they can be part of that game. Mm. So, well, yeah, I mean, the answer is you know stability and bipartisanship. But it, you know, if we think about how bad things have been, the positives of the current situation are. Biden's invigorated the global process. Mm. Global capital's already made its bet. It's already mm. cast its bet yep. on the direction. Yeah. That's that's happening. That will roll out either in a stable way or in a chaotic way. Mm. So there's sort of pluses because you and I could not have said that, you know, even mm. probably, I don't know, maybe we could have said it five years ago, ex-Biden, but, mm. but like th these things are moving rapidly and, mm. and decisively. So then how do we... How do we get to a point of bipartisanship in Australia? Like, mm. obviously, you know, this is not a question for you to answer. This is a question for political actors to mm. answer. But if you – how do we do it? Because there's a complexity associated with doing it in that the Liberal and National Parties have spent the best part of a decade telling the country that climate action is terrible for yep. their – material well-being, that, mm. that there's a cost and it's too high and there's too much dislocation. Mm. I mean, do you see that as the biggest barrier to entry to trying to turn this around to a, I'll use the detente word, right, American mm. China word? Like, it's sort of like, it's it's fine for us to say in mm. the pod cave, right, bipartisanship would be great. Yep. And of course it would. And mm. we need this in this area. Mm. <laughs> Well, it's it's the foundation of progress, right, yeah. in this area. Yeah. But then how do you do it when people have records of things that they've said in the past? Well, that's a that's a difficult political question. But I think one thing I did want to clarify just before I jumped into that was 
this was happening before Biden was elected. Yes, yes, uh, that the, is true. The yeah. UK were already it's already been their foreign policy priority yeah. for a long time. Yeah. UK, the Europeans, Japan, Japan had already committed region. to net zero emissions. Yeah. South Korea had already committed to net zero emissions. China had already committed to yeah. net zero emissions. So, and that I think that's one of the other things that's different this time, other than what the things you've said, is we're seeing countries who traditionally have been like us, relatively recalcitrant, like Japan, yeah. pivoting. Yeah, and I think Japan's maybe a. A good example, what we saw from the new prime minister was his immediately he came out and recognised and started to change the language. He mm. started to talk about how this is a massive economic opportunity for Japan. It's a competitiveness issue for them. They're obviously very worried about China and taking over and developing all these new technologies. Yeah. So they, they've quite successfully pivoted. Of course, they had a new prime minister to do it. Mm. But that's the kind of leadership and language that we really need. And I think that fundamentally we start we really need to be start being honest with people because – you know, what is happening to our, going to happen to our fossil fuel exports, whether it be coal or gas, they're not going to grow significantly. And in most cases, they're going to decline. And that's just because of the things we've talked about. Mm. Global capital markets are shifting, countries are moving. And we've got to have an honest conversation with those communities about what is the real issue. Because in, the transition's inevitable. And we need, and to the Prime Minister's credit, on the, on the weekend, um, or the other day, he said that this is the world has changed. Mm. He's recognised that, mm. and I think that's the language that we need to start communicating as the body politic that this is inevitable now. It's going to happen, and if we sit on our hands and sit on our feet, our economy is going to be smashed. How do you think, though, given what has been said in the past, mm. that those particular communities who have been targeted, uh, micro-targeted mm. in terms of the the negative messaging on climate action? Mm. How do you reckon they'll react to an alternate reality being put before them, or do you, or do you think really that they were alive to the complexities all along? Well, I th- you know, it's hard to like. I wasn't in some of those seats when the last no. campaign was being run, so no. I don't know exactly what was being said. But my experience with dealing with regional people, like I, my family comes from the bush in Queensland, mm. is that they're pretty practical people and they like people to be relatively honest. And my experience of dealing with the coal workers and the coal unions over the years has been very positive. So it requires, and I think that's, I think we can have the conversation. The only thing that's stopping us from having the conversation is the hyper-political nature Mm. of that particular one point that is going to kill our coal industry. Whatever we do, it doesn't, like, we can't control our coal industry. No, and the coal industry, you said, is already dead. It's just, Mm. it's it's heading for the end of its natural life and it will be replaced by alternatives mm. but yeah that's i guess that's in because uh, you know look people who were who work in politics professional mm. advisors in politics politicians mm. have told me many times over the years that repositioning is the hardest thing to do mm. it's 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 an art in and of itself moving mm. from one point to another mm. without appearing obviously to be a liar mm. <laughs> you see what I mean? I do understand. It, it is, I know I giggled because I'm not sure that anyone thinks no, the politicians well, aren't liars. No, 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 no. And, and, and many lies, let's be clear, many lies have been told uh, yeah. about this shameful, a shameful level of lying has occurred here. Yeah. But it's just, but it is, nonetheless, it's it's sort of the, it, you know, it's the holy grail we can't reach hmm. unless someone finds a way to reposition in a way that that preserves their credibility mm. and preserves the capacity of politicians to reach an agreement that is in the national interest. 
Yeah, but uh, they, you know, I'm slightly optimistic in some respects because we've seen this happen in South Australia and New South Wales under under coalition governments mm-hmm. where they went like the New South Wales government went into the last election really attacking renewables. Yeah, and now they're pro renewables. Yeah looking to drive investment in renewables. The, South, the New South Wales government has, has really pivoted. Now, they've obviously got internal tensions themselves. Yeah. But they're, they're putting in place a plan which would actually unlock economic, economic opportunities for their state. Because this is what – this is, I think, the, a more fundamental problem is because our politicians aren't necessarily getting the clarity on what is happening outside of Canberra. Yes. And like, until that light bulb moment goes off – my experience is that not a lot happens. But I have seen those light bulb moments go off over the years. Mm. Like Julie Bishop's a good example. When she came into the foreign ministry, had nothing, didn't know a lot about this, but at the end of the day became a really strong champion Mm. because she was out with the international community. Every international meeting she went to, talk about climate change. What are you doing about climate change? Mm. And we've seen these transformations in politicians over the years. And that's my hope. that if, And that's the only thing you can hope for because I think at the end of the day, if we lose hope, then we pack our bags up and go home and we're all stuffed. Exactly. Perfect note to end on. <laughs> Thank you very much, Erwin, for a great conversation. Thank you, as always, to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni, to Hannah Izzard. Don't forget the usual drill. Tell your friends about us. Leave ratings, reviews on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. All that stuff's helpful. The budget is bearing down on us now. The annual festival of the abacus is bearing down and hard. We'll be tracking in that direction, I think, over the next couple of weeks on the pod. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 